Did you know that Progress Alberta is part of a national community of leftist podcasts on the Ricochet Podcast Network? You can find the Alberta Advantage, 49th Parahel, Kino Lefter, Well Reds, The Progress Report, Les Ficelles, Out of Left Field, and Unpacking the News, as well as a bunch of other awesome podcasts at Ricochet Media or wherever you download your podcasts. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We are recording here in Amiskwichiwa Skygan, otherwise known as Edmonton, here in Treaty 6 territory. And ever since Jason Kenney started his campaign of brutal austerity and class warfare against working Albertans on behalf of the rich, we've seen trickles of it. We've seen mentions of it. You see it in the comments on a, on a news story on a particularly shitty thing that Jason Kenney's UCP government has done, or you see it in, in Progress Alberta's uh, you know, comment threads as well. Uh, and it's, and it's on people's lips and the word that's on people's lips here in Alberta is a general strike. And I sympathize. I think it is one of the most powerful tools working people have when it comes to fighting back against austerity. And when you look at Jason Kenney's attack on working people, it's a perfectly normal reaction. Uh, withdrawing our labor is the ultimate tool in the toolbox when it comes to us strikes work, but they don't just happen on their own. It takes planning and strategy, and we need to learn from what happened before. And that's why today on the show we have Sam Gindin. Sam was the research director of the Canadian Auto Workers from 1974 to 2000. He's the co-author with Leo Panich of The Makings of Global Capitalism and co-author with Leo Panich and Steve Meyer of The Socialist Challenge Today, which is getting an expanded and updated American edition uh, that's coming out this year. He's one of Canada's kind of foremost socialist and labor thinkers, and we're very glad to have him on the show. Sam, welcome to the Progress Report. Great to be here. So, uh, Sam, the reason you're in town and the reason we're able to have you on the pod face-to-face is that the Parkland Institute brought you in to talk about the days of action in Ontario between 1995 and 1998. Why don't you explain to our audience uh, what those days of actions were uh, and just kind of set the table for us for why why you think the Parkland Institute was was bringing you to speak to an audience of, of kind of labor activists. Okay, what uh, Ontario faced in the uh, mid-90s was something very similar to what you're facing today with Kenny. I want to be very careful about uh, what you strategically do in one place and at one time doesn't automatically transfer, but it's absolutely crucial that we look at it and draw lessons from it. So I I think that's the importance of looking back. Uh, so, So let me just describe what it was, first of all, and then maybe give some context and get into some of the uh, issues that are raised. What it was was uh, a strategy of having general strikes, but in one community at a time and spread over time. Uh, And I don't think anybody, as far as I know, this kind of a strategy has never really been tried anywhere before. So it was very creative and it was unique. Um, And uh, so what it meant, for example, was that we would... uh, uh, the government was elected in uh, June of 95. Uh, in the fall, it was clear how devastating this would be to communities. We had uh, our first general strike in December in London, Ontario. Then we had a follow-up in February in Hamilton. Uh, we had a few more in March in a, in a number of cities that were clustered together, and then Toronto uh, that October. So there was a space 
in between. Uh, the advantage of the space in between is that it gave us a chance to build. The advantage of concentrating on a community was that we could put our best organizers into that community. Uh, what we could also do is have a massive demonstration in that community to show that this really has widespread support. And it was crucial to do this with the movements. This had to be seen as this isn't just, nobody could label this as big union out for itself. We were really representing the community. So there's very much of a class action. It was uh, cross unions, and it was seeing workers as having a life in the community and being linked to the community and involving uh, the movements. Um, critical here, too, was that to pull this off, we didn't need absolute unanimity. You have to understand that part of the strategy reflected how weak we were. And we were weak in a number of senses. One was that we were divided over the question of the NDP. And maybe I should just give a quick background on what happened here. In 1992, the NDP government uh, got elected in Ontario. It was a surprise, a little bit like Notley getting, like uh, the earlier NDP government getting elected. Uh, and uh, what happened with the NDP in government was that they took labor for granted. There was a recession. They felt they had to make some tough decisions. So they opened collective agreements in the middle of the collective agreement, which set a horrible precedent. Uh, but it was because they were taking labor for granted and they were trying to show business that they could be trusted. They were catering to businesses who they had to win over. And I think that's things that would be familiar. It ended up with people getting pretty demoralized and the NDP uh, losing to this right-wing government. And then we suddenly confronted a right-wing government. Uh, the divisions were over people who said, well, it's nothing to do but wait for the next election. And people who said, you can't do that. You can't do that because uh, it's not clear that you're going to win again. You can't do that because you can't wait that long. You can't uh, do that because if you're just sitting around, uh, you're inviting the government to do more. The problem with not fighting is you're inviting them to do more. It's an open invitation. And you're also demoralizing your own members. You're weakening your own union. Your members are sitting around seeing, well, what's the union doing about this? So it really uh, hurts the union in terms of building. Uh, so we had to, the counter argument was that we had to think new and bigger. And that part of our problem was our inability to think big. That's why we were in this place. So there was this conflict between people who said, we can't really do too much, and you have to wait for the NDP. There's also, I think, some of the people who said wait for the NDP were worried that if we did take this kind of politics seriously, the politics of the street, it might substitute for electoral politics. But instead of a province-wide general strike, you decided on this strategy yes. of like localized which is, general strikes within a city or a exactly, location. which is what I, I you know I want to emphasize in terms of our relative weakness. We were divided along the NDP. We were uneven in our development. Some unions were more advanced, more militant, had a different kind of history, were stronger. So we were divided that way. But what we could do is uh, because we the bus drivers were on side, because the teachers were on side, because they were in bargaining. And the teachers were very conscious of they didn't want to just bargain by themselves because they would be isolated. So they loved this idea, which was a radical idea for them, to have this general strike in communities, but they saw it as uh, helping them. Uh, posties were on side. So it meant that even though we weren't united, we could actually shut down uh, schools, government buildings, transportation, and key manufacturing. And that, so that was another advantage of doing a community at a time. We had that strength. We could concentrate, bring in our best organizers, bus in people for large rallies, 
Uh, so that was the advantage of that strategy. Plus, it meant that it was sustained and we kept pressure on the government for a long time. Now, I should explain that part of our thinking was we got to tell people not just that this was a bad government, but why they were doing this and on whose behalf. So we were really trying to go after business that was endorsing this. And the point of continuing it over time was to say you're going to have continued instability in this profit over time, and you better stop pushing this kind of agenda with Harris. Now, the, the general strike question, which always comes up from the left when something like this happens, um, is important. I mean, you have to do something that's big, that's disruptive. Uh, you, you know, that isn't just a normal strike. That, that's absolutely critical. The problem with a general strike is if you're not really strong, you have to worry that you're going to be the one that fades. And if you have a general strike and it lasts a few days or a week or two, and then you give up, uh, you're really in trouble. You've kind of exposed your weakness. That's one problem. And the other problem is it takes a lot to get ready for it. Well, that's the other thing too, right? I mean, people will cast off, well, they'll just toss it off, right? Well, let's have a general strike. It's like, well, that's a, that's a lot of fucking work. Yeah. <laughs> to, and I'm curious about the actual mechanics, like how much, how much time and effort, what was being shut down? How much work between unions and organizers like how it, it, it was a phenomenal amount so you know i mean what you said is absolutely true and vital that if you are thinking about a general strike you can't just announce it there's a reason why you couldn't call a general strike a little while ago there's a reason for why the conservative right-wing conservative government got elected with worker votes you just weren't strong enough so you can't just suddenly turn around if you if you've been basically either a business unionism or going on business as usual you can't just suddenly become that radical it takes an enormous prep preparation and then it takes an enormous preparation to to have these which are basically tests to have these uh strikes at the community level and then maybe you might you know it's not it's not saying we'll never have a general strike, but then maybe you'll be in a position to it. So I, I do want to emphasize, yeah, a couple of things that you've said. You really need a strategy. You really need organizers. You really need to reach your members. Uh, you, you need uh, a lot of organizing skills just in terms of logistics, of carrying this out. You know, we were bringing buses in in Hamilton. We had trouble actually getting them all into the city. Buses, signs, food, yeah. directions. Right, health, uh, you know, I mean, uh, emergency health issues. Um, you know, we had rock bands every 50 yards, so it was organizing cultural things. You know, we wanted to have a certain spirit to it. We wanted discipline. We didn't want the police enforcing discipline. We met with the police to say, we're going to marshal. We're going to be the marshals. And we met with them ahead of time so that, you know, that, that was clear, and we disciplined it uh, quite well. But let me point to a few other things that I think were critical. One was that we actually uh, went to each local and got the members to endorse it. So it wasn't just something that was coming from the top. Once you do that, you better have answers for the members if they're going to lose a day's pay. And some of them are going to be nervous about whether they're going to be fired for skipping work. So now you had to actually use your organization to educate people. You had to send your staff into each place. And that wasn't an automatic. The first place I remember going to was uh, St. Thomas uh, Ford Assembly Plant in London. And the only thing that had really come into force. There was a lot of talk about everything, including labor legislation, but the only thing that had come into force was 27% uh, uh, cut to uh, welfare payments, which mostly affected single mothers. And when the staff person came into the room, the meeting, he was booed, uh, and he had to make the case. By the time he left, uh, people were on side. 
they didn't want this they didn't want the kind of community that was being shaped by this government and not only that they were you know these people were skeptical were the first ones to actually call our office and say when's the next one and, and it just shows that workers are fluid they might act conservatively but it's not because they're fixed uh, they need to see that there's a plan they need to see that it's a credible plan they need to see that others are going to be there you're not just asking them to stick their necks out uh, they don't need to know that they're going to win but you have to know that the strike this fight is going to matter that if we, you know, there's a little bit much to think we're going to win, going from nowhere to winning. But you could say, um, you know, it's perfectly believable that we can slow this down. And if we don't slow it down, it'd be a lot worse, but we could slow it down. And we did, in fact, get rid of some of the worst aspects of the labor legislation. Uh, we did eventually turn around uh, some of the health care cuts uh, in the last uh, year of the Tory administration. They were basically forced uh, to reverse some of them and actually have fairly large increases. Um, we cross-picketed because it's illegal. So we had postal workers shut down an auto plant, auto workers shut down, you know, government office or whatever. Uh, and the advantage of that was not just the illegal question, it, it developed solidarity. Everybody was really doing this together. You were getting integrated in doing it. Um, we had co-chairs of uh, in each community. One was from uh, labor, one was from the movements, and one was a woman. And again, the point was that we needed the community for legitimacy, that it wasn't just a labor thing, that it wasn't just a... Yeah, where, where was civil society in all of this? How were they being integrated into these actions? Well, one of the interesting things, London was an example. I may, I may have my number wrong, but as I remember it, there were a couple of dozen social movements in the city who generally didn't speak much to each other either. So one impact of this is it got them involved and it got them speaking together and being coordinated with each other. So they came along quickly because they're waiting for leadership. They're waiting for somebody with the resources to act. And the outcome of it was, on the one hand, a lot of young people in the union who weren't very active actually got excited by this. This was fun. But not only that, a lot of young people and social movements who knew that labor is supposed to be progressive, but labor hadn't been exciting them for a long time. They suddenly saw that, hey, that's who a real agent of change can be. We have to be linked with them. So suddenly they could see part of something really big, and they got very excited. So the movements were great. They really participated, you know, and which really contributed uh, you know, to the numbers. But it also meant that you're starting to build a longer-term relationship in the community and, and changing how you think of what, you're doing all right. Well, I feel like we're in the like good vibes part of, of yeah. this story. So, like, like describe the movement at its peak, right? Like, w when was you know these days of action? When when were they flexing the, the most power? When did they have the most people out on the street? Well, in the early parts of it, uh, because the fight back started and people were very nervous about what happened. So, when London, Ontario turned out to be better than people expected, that got people excited about going further. Uh, Hamilton was great because it's close to Toronto and we could really get out a lot of the public sector. But, you know, but, uh, Hamilton had, you know, Labor said 100,000. Other estimates from the police were closer to 50,000. But whatever it was, I mean, the great famous protest of, in Seattle, that had 50,000 people. And we had this in Hamilton. In Toronto, we had 200,000 people. And that was the police estimate. So more. <laughs> yeah, so we had, so we had more. So, so uh, you know, uh, Harris was... Uh, uh, fading in the polls, 
people were excited about their potential. Uh, so, you know, that was kind of a peak, and you're kind of going on. The question always in any large struggle is, then what? Because the danger of a peak is you kind of get to the peak, and then you can go down the other side. And so, so there's two dimensions of this. One was the hope that we could actually win rank-and-file steelworkers and UFCW members, people who hadn't joined this. Uh, These were unions who were outside of, they outside, weren't participating in the They weren't participating. Action. We did make an agreement with them that we wouldn't shit on them for not being in it if they didn't run around saying this was a waste of time. So we kind of tried to maintain some. Pact, yeah, non-aggression pact. Very good way of putting it. But we were hoping is that the rank and file would say, shit, this is working. How come we're not directly involved? And that they would rebel. And that didn't happen. Uh, uh, I, I'll get back to, I, I think, why that didn't happen in a second. So that, that was one issue. Could, could you really accelerate it by getting more of the unions involved? And we couldn't. That was one problem. You know, and if we could have, we might have been thinking about, well, maybe we need a general strike in southern Ontario or in northern Ontario, and you kind of, kind of keep moving. Uh, the government held uh, tight, and I think we shouldn't be surprised. This is a government that was recently elected. Governments have a certain legitimacy, even when they're doing lousy stuff. And, you know, uh, defeating a government is a massive thing, as we're just seeing in France right now, which, which the, uh, that conflict just ended. It's really difficult. Uh, so at some point, people began to, especially the union leadership, well, where is this going? Where is this ending? Are I mean, we continuing to build power? Like, yeah. what's the end goal? And, and I think that, uh, I think it did exhaust itself. And there's a few lessons from this that I think are important. I mean, one is that unions are unions. They have daily functions. They're governing... Uh, structures with all kinds of different people in it. They're responsible in bargaining. Grievances, contracts, Grievances, bargaining. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're, there's all kinds of things going on. And they can move away from it for a while, which is terrific. And you can start developing a class perspective instead of just this particular perspective of I'm representing my members, which is great. But sustaining it needs another kind of organization whose job is to sustain it. And we don't have that. I mean, the NDP, you know, a political party should have been doing all the education. You know, we were running meetings. We put out tons of literature. The media was attacking us, which we loved because it meant everybody in these small communities was talking about it. We sent organizers into Tim Hortons just to talk to people randomly. I mean, this was really, this was what was happening in these communities because the media was immediately saying, unions announce chaos coming in two months. So it actually, you know, and if we didn't do our job, we would have gotten killed. But it forced us to say, we better get in there. And we got in there. And it showed what, you know, unions could do. But, but you know, political education is the job of a party whose main goal in life is organized that way. And that's not what the NDP is. It, it, you, know, you, you know, we can criticize it for not having radical policies. But the pro real problem is it's not concerned with how to develop working people into collective agencies that can transform society. How do we develop their understanding? How do we develop their you know, strategic capacity? How do we develop them as organizers? Or even and just that, education, right? Yeah. Like, like, what are you reading? What's your knowledge exactly. of how power works? Exactly, and how power Stu is study groups, podcasts. I mean, this is what uh, newspapers, you know, you looked at the CCF in the 30s, there were dozens of newspapers. NDP doesn't have this anymore. And part of the reason for that is that they're electoralist. They don't see themselves as transforming society. They see themselves as getting elected and being a kinder face of neoliberalism, hopefully a little bit better. Well, if that's your goal, then you don't have to do all of this stuff. What you want from workers is they'll knock on doors and they'll give you some money. 
Yeah. So, so, so the problem we were running into of what next, I wasn't surprised by the fact that the trade union leaders began to fade because uh, we shouldn't expect them to be revolutionary. Uh, what, I, what was disappointing was that <clears throat> the left itself uh, criticized the leadership, but it itself, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> It itself didn't figure out how to take advantage of this. Yeah, where were the NDP in this? Were they? Oh, the NDP was, uh, uh, I'd say, cool generally, but you know, once you've got people in motion, they had to be there. They would come out to, uh, you know, sections of the NDP would definitely, rank and file members would definitely come to events, and some of the leaders started coming to the event, so they couldn't be hostile to it, but they weren't the leaders. The, the unions themselves became the political arm and the educators. And they didn't see it as an opportunity to and do the education and, and do that Quite the opposite. Work. I think they were happy for it to end so that everybody can go back to electing the NDP. And the left uh, wasn't, it, it either wasn't organized enough or it wasn't thinking strategically and it was more concerned with just pushing militancy, just keep going. And what it didn't do is every time we left a community, we left something there, but when we left, it was over. We just took everybody into another community. This was an ideal time to go into those communities and organize. People were pumped. And you could, again, you'd have to think about, well, creatively, what should we do? You know, unemployment was an issue at the time. Should we go door to door and find out what people need, what their skills are, and say, well, why don't we have more childcare? You know, would you be, you know, if you had childcare, would you be willing to work? And start thinking about a local community plan for doing things. We didn't do that. We didn't recruit people who were saying what next. We should have been recruiting people. We, we didn't have the capacity to you do just that. Kind of moved on to the next community, next project. We moved project. to the next community, next project, and the left itself didn't behave any differently. You know, they were good soldiers in, in doing all of this stuff. So there was a missed opportunity from the left. So this thing uh, ends. And when these things end, uh, people have these memories. They all, anybody who's involved, I, I spoke last night at the Parkland Institute, and a woman stood up to correct the numbers I used in Hamilton, an old elderly woman who was in it. And before she sat down, I, I, I asked, well, uh, you were there. How did you remember it? Do you think that I'm giving the story an accurate description? And she said it was the best moment of my life. So people remember it and it affected them. But once you stop having the structures and the struggle, you go back to normal life. And what normal life tells you is you don't really have that much power. You're dependent on the corporations. Uh, you're cut off, you're worried about your own problems, your union, even where there's collectivity and solidarity, it's still just your union. So, uh, you know, so, so, you know, we have to look at it in terms of, well, what did we learn? We did learn that the members will be there if we give them a plan and structures and support them and do the education. That was an important lesson. We learned that we have incredible capacities. Give our stewards something to do, train them, Hire, put full-time people onto these things, and we can organize, do the logistics. That was impressive. Uh, so, you know, we learned those kinds of impressive things, but we also had to learn that we needed another organization that does this full-time. Which or, is, that organizes the public, that works with the public. And organizes workers in the public. And, you know, that's what a socialist party should be. You have to remember that at the end of the 19th century, when social democratic parties were first formed, they were formed to get workers to vote because at that point in time you had to have property. Otherwise, uh, you weren't uh, given the Democratic franchise. But, you know, the German party, it had pubs. It had libraries because it saw it as, well, that's where workers discuss things. We want workers to read. 
had you, newspapers, you, right? Yeah, yeah, it had tons of newspapers. It didn't just have newspapers. It had journals. It had, you know, theoretical journals. It had newspapers where you debated something, where you had two sides. It uh, had, so you know, throughout Europe, they had soccer clubs. This is where the soccer clubs came from. Union Berlin. Yeah. I mean, this is where they all came from because it was a cultural thing. You know, if you weren't going to have culture, this was how you rooted people. That's how you got to the families. You know, they had swimming clubs. So that sense of what a party is was lost. And that's been one of the major defeats for the working class. We lost that. And once you lose it, see, see, one of the things that happens is that when we think about organizing people, we think about awareness, we think about injustice, uh, we think about urgency, the environment, the right. But if people don't see structures they can work through that matter, they can't have hope. And if they don't have hope, it's, they don't make a commitment. And then you have to have a way of reproducing this. The trouble with the protests is that they end. So you have to have ways of sustaining things. And for that, we do need an institution, whatever we call it. But I think, you know, it used to be called a party, a space to strategize, a space to educate, a space to lead campaigns, a psychological anchor. So you could actually believe in something that's working and talk with people who share yeah. your values and your yeah. beliefs. I mean, I think, yeah, you could argue that capitalism's greatest success over the past 50 years has been, you know, successfully atomizing us and reducing us to our individual component parts and kind of smashing that solidarity that used to exist, as you say. And, and yeah, any kind of left wing organization should be thinking about how to build these types of institutions. Exactly. Right? How do you bring people together? Yeah. I mean, the, the normal workings of a capitalist society tend to divide people. But then you've got neoliberalism doing exactly what you said. And, and workers have ended up internalizing it. If you, people will always do something to survive and for their family to survive. But when they don't see those collective organizations, like a party, what do they do? They work through their summer vacation so they'll pay off the increase in dues. Uh, the kids stay at home a little bit longer so they can save some money. They find individual solutions. You opt for lower taxes, it's like a wage increase. And so you end up reinforcing, reproducing neoliberalism. And you can't combat that in just kind of hoping, well, people will get pissed off and something will happen. Yeah, they'll get pissed off and they might protest or they'll solve it themselves, but it has to be organized. It has to be, have some kind of a structure. And that's why the need for a socialist organization is more important than ever before at a moment when it isn't there at all. When it doesn't exist. Okay, so let's take it back to the original thing, right? So, so you want to have a general strike. If you could give advice to people planning a general strike in Alberta today, what would you have to say to them? I guess I would emphasize that if you can't get your members on side, don't think that you can pull this off from the top. Uh, it'll just fade away. Uh, they'll see your weaknesses. So, so it has to involve... Uh, the issues have to be there, and the issues are clearly there. That's not the, the problem. But it does have to uh, uh, educate the members so they really understand, because some of this hasn't been in, put into place yet. They really understand what's coming, and it's going to be worse. So the, the, the kind of education is, in, is necessary. Uh, you, have to, you have to start actually giving a more radical uh, education, because it isn't just Kenny. Kenny can be replaced. There's an agenda, and you have to show that this, ha this is happening elsewhere. There's a pattern here. Yeah, they're, they're cutting corporate taxes. They're defunding public yeah. services. And that's like, not new. You know, you've seen that in Ontario. You see it in the United States. You see it in Europe. So that's one thing. You have to give people a sense that fighting back uh, 
has to be a class project that you're not alone. Your union can't just say, I'll go on strike and that somebody else is going to, they're just going to pick you off. You have to realize that, hey, we have to fight differently. You have to realize that something has changed. And as somebody put it at the meeting yesterday, there's an existential crisis. I mean, unions have to really ask whether in their old form they can really represent their members. And if they can't, it's going to be easy to attack them. I mean, as the liberal order kind of fractures apart, right, as it is increasingly shown to, to be unable to provide for people's basic needs, and we see the right capitalizing on this, right? Like, what is to be done on the other side of the equation? Exactly. How yeah, do that, we take that, care of that's why the urgency is, you know, it's the environment, but it's also that the alternative is that the right's going to take advantage of the frustrations. So, so you know, it's absolutely fundamental. We, we have to get it into our heads that we have to do something. There's not, there's not, you know, when the 80s, this kind of stuff started in the 80s, people thought, well, wait it through. It's just a particular government. Uh, it'll change if there's an election. And we've got to get that out of our head. The Ontario NDP still have not won an election since, yeah. since the 1990s. Yeah, right? we, we have to really say, look, uh, we're, facing, we're facing something that isn't going to go away unless we really organize to fight it. We have to fight it. We still have unions that have certain resources and strength. We have to transform the unions. It's just a question of having more union dues and more density. We need different kind of unions, and we have to think this through. What does that mean? And how do we struggle? Uh, so it's not just saying we have to struggle. It's how do you struggle? And then strategically, I, I would just be careful about calling a general strike unless you're so strong that you think you can sustain it. And even then you have to ask, well, you know, states are pretty legitimate. You know, they're going to make this illegal. They're going to get the police out. Uh, people are going to start drifting away. So you have to be so prepared. And it makes much more sense to raise the question of how do we strengthen ourselves so that one day we can do that kind of action. And I think, you know, we shouldn't write off the legislative thing. We do have to come to government, but it's not to come to government to administer a capitalist society. We have to come to government to, you, to transform the state so that it helps us democratize society. If you leave the state and electoralism to reactionaries, you will get a reactionary state, reactionary government, right? And I also think that, yes, like the idea of organizing a general strike is is an idea to hold in your head, right? But it, it has to be part of a longer-term project. It has to be the ultimate goal, with, but with the underlying, with, but, but doing all of the things that you're talking about. Yeah, I, I think you put it well by saying that it has to be part of a larger strategy. It's a tactic. And as a tactic, you decide when it's useful, when it's not, and what forms to take. And I, I think also people should think creatively about, so what do you do here? You know, the rotating strikes is one idea that we came up with. There's other things that could be done. I mean, you could decide that let's have a week of protest and every day shut down a different part of the economy or the government uh, and disrupt for a week and then do this again or, you know, in another month, warn them that if they don't start slowing down, this is what's going to happen. Uh, you absolutely have to get the public on side so they can't isolate you. So they can't claim we're the elected government and we have support. You have to show that, no, you ran without those promises. You lied. And now you're exposing yourself and people are turning against you. So, so getting to, well, you know, we have to think of the class as including the community, partly because workers do live in the community, uh, which is so important. But, but uh, there's all kinds of people who aren't in unions that we want to reach. And that's another thing that's very important. You do not want precarious workers to resent you because you have a union job. You want to sh and you can't say to them, oh, we're on your side. 
you have to show that you're on their side. And you can only show you're on that side by using your resources and your members to struggle for these broader things well, especially that are important as, to them. Especially as the rise of precarious work is just, is just you know, going yeah. climbing and, and, chart exponentially. Right? Yeah, and you've got union workers who are becoming increasingly precarious too, like auto workers who have two-tier wages and young workers having, you know. Yeah. So, the, so, po the posties fighting, you know, two-tier yeah. pensions and all yeah. that stuff. Right? So, so. Yeah, so we just have to see we ha we have to see the struggle as bigger rather than just being intimidated by it. We have to think about transforming our unions. We have to think about strategy as more than protest. We have to really think it through. We have to do all the logistical difficult stuff of training and education and planning. Um uh and we really have to think in class terms. Like we're trying to build workers who are just fragmented individuals who happen to sell their labor into a social force that can lead the transformation of society. And we have to define the class very broadly, not you know the way it used to be defined as the industrial working class is what being a worker there's no, meant. There's very little factory floor to organize anymore, yeah. right? I mean, that, ultimately, you're right, though. There are more of us than there are of them. Yeah. Uh, Although, you know, we shouldn't, you know, we, we keep thinking, you know, I mean, for example, th th there are large workplaces. Warehouses for Amazon are enormous. Uh, you know, Walmart is, is a very large space. So, there, you know, there still are large workplaces, and where there is manufacturing, uh, you know, it's important. Uh, transportation is incredibly important logistically. And the importance of things like healthcare and uh, education is uh, they can't be moved yeah. abroad, and they provide a social service, so they link immediately to... Well, and they're one of the few the public goods we have left, right? Yeah. Like healthcare, education, yeah. and maybe libraries are the three things that people like. Well, no, like the private sector should not be providing those things. Yeah. It's interesting you bring up the teachers in Ontario and, and how instrumental and the, how much they were a part of the process there because they were going through bargaining. I mean, the teachers in Alberta are, I think it's probably fair to typify them or characterize them as not as militant as Ontario teachers who are, who are currently on strike in Ontario. But the bargaining for teachers is coming up. And uh, I think it's worthwhile for the teachers to consider a, a more militant turn and to actually turn towards a unionism that looks at strategies like this, right? Yeah. No, I think that's important. I mean, you know, I mean, in Ontario itself, you could see the beginnings of union uh, teachers when, you know, the post-war boom ended and teachers were starting to be attacked and teachers in Ontario uh, had fairly good conditions that they were starting to be attacked and they began to pay more attention to the labor movement, get into the OFL. They're in the Ontario Federation of Labor, unlike here. But teachers in Ontario are fragmented into five unions. So that's, that's one problem. And teachers have tended to vote liberal is another issue. So the question for teachers is, uh, you know, what you posed. I mean, they're going to confront this. And if they confront it alone, they will not get anything. The, it'll be worse. They're going to build resentment against them as, you know, they, they don't work in the summer and they've got a great pension. And so teachers have to take on this fight and, and it, you, you know elementary teachers for example very hard for them to go on strike because what's going to happen with the kids so they have to really think this through can they set up alternative childcare centers can you can you have rotating strikes uh as teachers but what you really have to think through is you have to get to the unions and you can't get to the unions unless you're fighting you, you can't go to the unions and say we're not going to fight will you take on this fight you have to fight and then you have to get the community. So one of the great things that's happening in Ontario is that there's been a lot of organizing of parents. Um, 
By the way, one of the things that the Harris government in Ontario did in, in the schools was it got rid of, it took principals out of the bargaining unit to make them into managers and to divide some of your power uh, is one thing it did. And also canceled uh, parent-teacher organizations, which weren't that great, but they were a democratic form. Were an and, inter interface between parents and yeah, the, the schools. And, and the they centralized education for all the talk about neoliberalism being seen as weakening the state. That's not quite correct. Neoliberalism strengthens the state in certain ways and then weakens it in others. And they took much more control over the content of education so the teachers couldn't teach progressive things. This was a major issue. But getting back to, uh, to, to the teachers here, they're going to need the labor movement. They have to see the labor movement talking radically as a positive because the alternative is going to be they can't be militant by themselves anyways. So they have to see that as positive. They have to see putting some of their resources into helping parents organize. And what they did in Ontario was uh, they made contacts in, in schools. They started in their own neighborhoods in Toronto. But they eventually spread it to the whole province. And uh, online, they gave them kits so they knew all the impacts of all the education cuts. And they gave them the simple things. How do you run a meeting? How do you write a letter? Uh, and, and then they set up a list so they could call people out for demonstrations. One of the problems is that the teacher's strategy is still very top-down. So the members don't really know what they are, what it is. So they're kind of sitting around wondering, which isn't a good thing. They feel cut off. And the parents are being used by the leadership in a certain way. Uh, they're, they're really supportive of what the parents are doing. You know, they're, they're, they're joining in articulating why the cuts are so bad. But if you end up just calling the parents and saying, we've got a big demo tomorrow, come, that's not what you want to do. You want to find a way of integrating them in also into the strategy. These are all democratic questions that have to do with improving your strategy. So for teachers, you know, it's forcing teachers to think of themselves as uh, they may have always thought of themselves as professionals that had a certain status, and that's good because you want to have that status, you want to have that kind of autonomy and control, but what they're seeing is that uh, you're going to lose it if you're not actually seeing yourself as having other things in common with people. And so, you know, so again, these are all moments to keep learning these things. And the question is, can the labor movement do it, or do we also need socialists who are thinking about this all the time by the nature of what being a socialist is, also to organize themselves to engage in these fights and to think strategically. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. Sam, thanks so much for coming onto the show. Uh, what's a way for people to follow you? Do they, do they buy your book? What's a way people can support you, follow what you're up to? You have a Twitter account? I don't know. No, I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I don't have Twitter. or uh, uh, You know, I'm, I'm part of the Socialist Project, and... Uh, uh, we do a lot of uh, we do a lot of things in our own uh, community in Toronto in terms of forums, etc. But we put out a bullet, uh, which is worth following. It, it really keeps up, keeps up with political events and struggles everywhere. What's that called? Where can people find it? On the Socialist Project webpage, they can find all the material. We do a lot of streaming. We stream all our forums that we do so they can be reached by others. We do podcasts, so there's a lot of material there that I think is. Uh, worth following through. And in terms of um, the days of action, I might put together some material so that we've got something available and uh, we can send out to people if they want to contact me at sam.gindon at gmail.com. Um, and uh, if 
parents, if they're thinking about parents organizing, we can put them in touch with people who did this in tr Ontario and pass on their kits so they can do the same thing here. I, I, I yeah, I, I think this, Edmonton doesn't get on the radar very much, I have to say. Or Alberta, uh, broadly out, speaking. Out Broad, broadly, you know, other than, you know, the tar sands and uh, a view of Alberta as being right-wing. And I have or, to say reactionary that, politics. Yeah, and, and my, my experience coming here is actually always to actually get excited about, uh, about what's happening here. And I think that getting some more links on questions like the environment and questions like conversion with what's happening in Ontario would be terrific. Okay. Well, Sam, thank you uh, for so much for being on the show. Um, and folks, if you like this podcast and you want to keep hearing interviews like this, um, there's a few things you can do to help us out. You can definitely, you know, smash that like button when we post it on our social media. But beyond that, we really do like it when you uh, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever your podcatcher is of choice. It's really awesome if you can share this content with your friends. If you have a friend who's been yelling general strike whenever uh, Jason Kenny's name pops up, definitely share this podcast with them. I think they will get a lot out of it. Um, the other thing that really helps us out is giving us money. If you want to join the 250 other folks who help keep this independent media project going with regular monthly donations, you can go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card and contribute, you know, five, 10, $15 a month. It really does go a long way to helping us uh, more financially sustainable. And it is, you know, Jim and I's full-time job, this project and all the other things we do at Progress Alberta. Also, if you have any notes, thoughts, comments on the content or the conversation that we had today, I really do want to hear from you. Please reach out to me. I am on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Family Communist for the amazing theme. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Sam again, and goodbye.